Uh, Our scripture reading today is Romans chapter 5, verses 18 through 21. That's on page 942. And our scripture reader is Mary Colley. In honor of God's word, uh, let's stand together. Listen as I read. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abound all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. This is the word of the Lord. So uh, as I uh, come up here, I am, uh, you know, I'm experiencing a lot, of, a lot of joy in our congregation. And uh, you know, I know that part of that joy could be Sojourn Kids is back. Uh, I know that part of that joy could be that we're starting this series on Romans 8. And I also know that part of that joy could be that Ohio State lost yesterday. Yeah, yeah, preach it, yeah. Um, that is always a good day. Um, so uh, I hope it's about the first two things, and um, and this this opportunity that we have uh, as as a church uh, over these next weeks, uh, Romans Romans chapter eight uh, is going to be our focus for this Sunday and the seven Sundays. That's uh, an eight part uh, eight part series, and the subtitle that that we have uh, put on this is just exploring the life and love that Jesus offers. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones uh, was a Welsh uh, pastor back in the, in the 20th century, and uh, maybe you're familiar with this, but he wrote uh, just a monster set of commentaries on the book of Romans. And so a lot of people kind of turned their attention to Martin Lloyd-Jones and, 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 and would see him as somewhat of a, uh, a guy who invested a large chunk of his life in, in uh, absorbing the story of Romans, the, the message of Romans, uh, working hard to apply it to his congregation <clears throat> to help others understand the beauty of, of Romans. And uh, it, one of the things that Martin Lloyd-Jones said, uh, he actually was referring to other people's ideas. He said that, that, that there's a, this general sense where people have referred to the 16 chapters of Romans as the most beautiful collection of gems in the whole Bible. Meaning that the whole Bible is, is full of jewels and gems and goodness and it's, it's God's word to us and we, we value it and we, we, we want to know it. Uh, And he's like, just, but people have recognized that what's collected in these 16 chapters of Romans is, is this unique collection. It's, it's, you could make the case that it's the most beautiful collection of, of gems that you find in these 16 chapters. And then Martin Lloyd-Jones adds to that. He agrees with that idea, but he adds to it that Romans 8 is the brightest gem of them all. So if it is true that Romans has a collection of the brightest gems in the Bible, uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, who spent so much energy and time and, and so much of his life in the book of Romans, says chapter 8, just, it just stands out. There's just something about it. Uh, or uh, th- there's a, a, a Presbyterian pastor named Derek Thomas, and, uh, and he wrote a, a book uh, on Romans chapter 8. And uh, I'm just going to read you a couple sentences uh, from him. He said, no chapter of Scripture reaches the same sustained levels or covers the same ground as Romans 8. It is a description of the Christian life from death to life, 
from justification to glorification, from trial and suffering to the peace and tranquility of the new heaven and new earth. It contains exhortations to, pers- to persevere as well as reassurances of God's preservation of his people. And no chapter has been cited more than this, uh, than this one in expounding the application of redemption in the life of an individual. In short, Romans 8 gives us a picture of salvation in its completeness. And that's why he titled his book, How the Gospel Brings Us All the Way Home. And I love that, that, that language. How the gospel brings us all the way home. When Derek Thomas looked at Romans chapter 8, he thought, like, that's the best way to snapshot this. Romans 8 shows us how the gospel brings us all the way home. So it's the, it's the whole picture. It's the, it's the whole journey of, of the Christian life. And so my prayer is that over these weeks, uh, that, that's what we get to observe. That's what we get to consider. Uh, as you might be aware, that you know, Romans 8 uh, goes through so many different subjects and so many different ideas, uh, from the beauty of, of the indwelling spirit to the, the reality of a new family in Jesus, uh, to the suffering that we endure, uh, to the confidence that God is not absent in our suffering, uh, to the promises of him being with us, no matter who's against us. Um, so, the, so, so, many, so many good, good things. And uh, I hope that we can uh, benefit from it in the weeks ahead. But before we get into the chapter, uh, I want to spend our time today actually trying to orient ourselves to this, this single chapter of, of Romans chapter 8. So we're going to survey... Uh, the book of Romans. We're going to uh, kind of race, race through this. And it's 16 chapters, like I just said. Many would say it's uh, uh, the most significant book in the New Testament in regard to what it contains. What, like what, if you were just to say, what does it contain, chapters, ch- first chapter through last chapter, you could make the case that it's the most significant book uh, in, in, in the New Testament. Um, but chapter 8 is the one that we're going to be focusing on. So here's the deal. Uh, the author is a guy named Paul. And Paul uh, grew up, he was a highly educated Jew. Uh, he was uh, also, we, we know that he was a Pharisee. In Galatians chapter 1, as he talks about his backstory, he says, I was the most zealous of all. Like I was after it. Uh, I knew the law of God. I knew the Old Testament. I knew the Torah. I lived it out. Uh, the Pharisees were uh, highly respected religious leaders, and he was, he was one, of the, one of the best ones. Uh, he was also a Roman citizen. Uh, and he vehemently opposed the message of Jesus. Uh, he was part of uh, killing some of the messengers of the gospel. Um, he was uh, involved in, 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 in oppressing the message of, of the gospel, the, the work of the church, until uh, what we sometimes refer to as the road to Damascus. Um, he was on his way to do more persecution. He was on his way to tamp down the progress of the gospel again. And Jesus meets him uh, on this road and everything, everything changes. And uh, Jesus confronts Paul and he calls Paul to follow him. And Paul hears this call and Paul submits his life and Paul becomes uh, a missionary, he becomes a church planter, he becomes a writer of these significant letters uh, to the local churches, and just has an, an amazing impact. Uh, the, the, the impact of Paul in the first century is, is almost un, unstatable, it's, it's almost uh, unexplainable, uh, the way that God used this guy who was once oppressing the church and then became the greatest promoter 
uh, of the gospel uh, in, in the church. Well, one of the letters that he wrote was right here, uh, this letter. It's called the Letter to the Romans. Uh, and this letter was written to a local church in the city of Rome uh, sometime in the late first century. Uh, it was written to a church that was divided. Uh, the church had some, some issues going on. It had both uh, Jewish uh, members of the church and Roman members of the church. And some of the division probably was related to that, uh, that there were people who had very, very strong opinions about well, what the Jewish faith, what the impact of the gospel was on the Jewish faith. And then if you were a Gentile, if you were a non-Jew, uh, and you responded to the gospel, uh, you didn't have any of that, uh, maybe what you would say, Jewish baggage to work through. And so now they're all in one church. They're all to gathered together, both Jew and Gentile, both Jew and Roman. And, uh, and so Paul writes this letter, and he writes this letter in part to unify this church, and to unify this church for their own good, and for the mission of God in the world. Now look, unity is quite the subject for our current cultural moment. Um, we are, we are we're struggling. We're struggling uh, locally. We're struggling nationally. We're struggling around the, around the world. Uh, unity is something that is not coming easily uh, in our current cultural moment. But as you read the scriptures, you, you recognize that unity is necessary for the mission of God. Uh, that this idea of, uh, uh, you know, think of any team or any army. If, if that team is not united, if that team lacks alignment, then you can just imagine how ineffective that will be. It will, it will cripple you. But when a team gets aligned or when an army gets aligned, when, when there's, there's clarity on what they're doing, when there's unity on their purpose, um, they are so much more effective in what they've been called to do. And so Paul looks at these, these Christians in Rome and says, you, you got you to be together. Like, I want you united for the mission of God. But he also, is, it's, it's unity for the good of them, for them personally. So y y y unity is good for you. Y unity is something you got to work at. And it's good for the mission of God, and it's good for you. And yes, yes, unity means that you have to learn how to get along with other people. And somehow we're not very good at that right now. Learning how to just get along with other people. How not to let your preferences, which you are free to have, but not to let those preferences rise to the level of creating disunity in your relationships anywhere, but especially among the people of God. And Paul is writing to this church to help them do this. And he does it by saying, I want you to see how the gospel forms you into a new people. It actually, it's, it's, it's fundamentally changing who you are. So Paul was a stranger to this church. Paul had never been there. Paul didn't, he didn't plant this church. He'd never actually visited them. But he did want to visit them. He did want to come to them. And he makes, that, uh, he makes it clear that he wanted to get there. And he longs to help them, and he wants them to see how the gospel does do that, how it forms them uh, into, into new people. See, if one hears and sees the gospel, we believe that it really does change everything. And the reason that we believe that is because it will forever change a, person, a person's relationship with God. That when you hear and see, when you respond to the good news about Jesus, it fundamentally changes your relationship with God. And when that changes, it overflows into every other part of your life. 
And so Paul, as he writes this letter to this church in Rome to encourage them, to help them, to unify them, you could say that the primary question is, how can someone be right with God? How how can that happen? How, How could that ever happen? Well, here's the first half. Paul answers the question. In Romans 1 through 8, let's just, we're just going to walk through kind of the flow. And I, I might reference these as chapter at a time. Paul's argument is not necessarily completely contained in a single chapter. But just, just follow along the flow of, of, Paul's, uh, of Paul's case here, the argument that he's making. So he starts off chapter 1 with some introductory comments and then uh, a few verses about just the beauty and, and the power of the gospel Uh, Maybe some very familiar verses to you. Maybe you've never heard them before. But Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, he says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And so that's that's kind of the introduction where he says, here's what I'm going to tell you. This is what I'm going to tell you. And then chapter by chapter, he unpacks what he means in those few verses. So in chapter 1, the rest of chapter 1, he basically says this. Everyone is in need of rightness. Starting in, in verse 18, your Bible might have subtitles, um, but my Bible does. And it says, God's wrath on unrighteousness. And the rest of chapter 1 is Paul revealing the fact that there are, uh, there are many people who have actively rejected God, who are in a state of what you might refer to as rebellion against the creator of the universe. And Paul unpacks these, these, this idea, and especially in those first four or five verses, he makes it really, really clear that these wicked actions, that this rebellious spirit against the God of heaven has consequences. And that God has a strong opinion about those who are suppressing the truth, who are rejecting his good way. And part of what what Paul is saying is, is that there is this, this sinfulness that is present in the heart of humans, and it's pervasive. And God, 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 God sees it as a problem. God recognizes that this is the division between him and humanity, and it's a tragic one. Well, you get to chapter 2, and you, if you were a Jew and you read chapter 1, you might be like, dang right, all these non-Jewish people screwing stuff up, all these non-Jewish people doing bad things, all of them need fixed. But you get to chapter 2, and you find out that he says, Jewish people, you need to listen to me. You're not better off. You're not better off. You can't work your way to rightness. Nobody can do that. Even if you have the law of God and you think that you are doing it, you're not doing it as good as you think you are. And so chapter 2 kind of functions as a warning against, uh, to those who look down their nose at the quote-unquote sinners. So there might be people in chapter 1 that, that you know who live out a life of chapter 1. And you're like, yeah, the judgment of God is on you. You better get your act together. Well, whoa, you know, it's that same idea. When you're pointing your finger, there's three fingers pointing back at you. And Paul says the Jewish people need to watch out as well. They're no better off. If chapter 1 was focused on wicked actions, chapter 2 is focused on wicked attitudes the wicked attitudes of self-righteousness, 
where you would have the audacity to assume that because of your resume, because of the things that you've done, because you were born Jewish, because you were born in the church, because you were raised in the church, whatever category you can come up with that you are putting over yourself and saying, that makes me right. Paul says, no, it doesn't. It doesn't work like that. No one can work their way to rightness. So Romans 1 and Romans 2 show the brokenness of sin and the brokenness of self-righteousness. You come into chapter 3, you, you, you see Paul making the case that only Christ can make you right. So in chapter 3, look at verse 23. Again, if you're familiar with the book of Romans, this might be a super familiar verse to you. But Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So in a sense, you could say, that's what he was saying in chapters 1 and 2. Everybody's in trouble. Everybody needs rightness and nobody can work for it. It doesn't matter how good you think your resume is. Nobody can work for it. But then look at verses 24 and 25, 26. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, verse 23, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation for his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So these verses are turning our attention to Christ. We've all fallen short. Everybody is in need of rightness. Nobody can earn it. Nobody can work their way to it. But Christ can make you right. Christ can actually do that. And in verse 27, he says, there's no boasting in this gospel. There's no boasting because you can't do it. Only Christ can do it. There is no way that you could ever earn this. You all, we all have fallen short. Only Christ can make us right. Then as you come into chapter 4, he begins to add a layer to this. Only faith in Christ will make you right. So only Christ can, but how? By faith. And as you read the fourth chapter of Romans, you know, he spends quite a bit of time talking about Abraham. And he goes back to to, to the book of Genesis and he begins walking through this, this story of this man that God called out. And Abraham stepped out in faith and he believed God. And as you read through Romans chapter 4, you find out that this this faith that Abraham had, it was counted to him for righteousness. That it's like, Christ, only Christ can make you right. But how does Christ make you right? By faith alone. There's no boasting in this gospel, but there is faith in this gospel. Now we have some confusion because the word faith in our current culture is a little contaminated. And I think it's been contaminated for a long time. Sometimes we, we, we aren't quite sure what does the Bible mean by faith? What does the Bible mean by believe? What does the Bible mean by trust? And it has this, this, this fundamental sense of a transfer of confidence. That this idea of, of putting your faith in Christ means that I am transferring all of my confidence from me or anything else to save me and putting that confidence on Christ alone to save me. That I have this functional shift, this functional transfer. Sometimes we refer to all of our self-salvation projects, all of the things that we think, man, if I can get that, then I'll feel right. 
If I can get that, then I'll feel like you know, God could accept me. If I, could, if I could just stop sinning this way, or if I could just do these good deeds, or if I could just lead this person to the Lord, or if I could just give this much money. Like we, we have all of these things that we think, if I could just do that, then. Well, that means you're putting your faith in that. It means you're, you're, there's some level of confidence that if you, could, if you could do that, then God would be okay with you. Well, the faith of the Bible is saying that there has to be a transfer. You've got to see that you've put your hope in the wrong thing. You've got to put, see that you've put your hope in, in a lesser thing. And you transfer that to hope in Christ alone. So only Christ can make you right. Only faith in Christ will make you right. Fifth chapter. Anyone can be made right. And this is good news. This is really, really good news. Uh, if you remember chapter, you know, chapters 1, 2, 3, right? We're all broken. All have fallen short of the glory of God. All are in need of rightness. All are sinners. But look at verses 6 through 8 of chapter 5. For while we were weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. But God shows his love for this, for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This is the good news. You don't have to clean yourself up to come to Christ. You can't clean yourself up to come to Christ. Who does Jesus save? Jesus saves sinners. That's who he saves. And his argument is, we're all in that category. You can't get out of that category and then come to Jesus. Jesus is the only one who can get you out of that category. And anybody who admits it, anybody who admits it can be made right. We say a lot here, all you need is need. That's, all you need is need. Jesus saves sinners and he'll save you if you admit you're one. And this is the good news. Nobody's left out. Anybody who will respond to that, whosoever will may come. Many won't. All you need is need, but most people don't have it. The book of Romans is telling us we're all in that condition. Christ is the only one who can make us right. Faith in Christ will make you right. And anyone who does it is welcomed into the family. Verses 12 through 21 of chapter 5 Tell us the how. How is this that anyone could be saved? How is it that this could, how could this be true for everybody? And what Paul says is that there is a first Adam who in the garden failed the test. In the garden, Adam did not believe God. Adam and Eve, instead of following in God's good way, went their own way, put their trust in their own thinking, in their own wisdom, and, and they, they rejected God's way and ate, ate the fruit. But Paul says there's a second Adam. And the first Adam failed. And when he failed, he brought sin into the whole world and contaminated the whole world and contaminated all of us. But just like the first Adam's wickedness contaminated the world, the second Adam's righteousness is available to the whole world. The second Adam's righteousness changes everything. And so if you will run to him, the second Adam, Christ, will make you right. And that's anybody. What an invitation. Anybody can be made right. 
Well, then we get to chapters 6 through 8. Everyone who is made right is changed fundamentally. You're changed. And, and there's hints at this idea throughout the first five chapters, too. But as you come to chapters 6 through 8, you get this invitation into maybe what you would say is a little bit more of the practical, the real-life implications of faith in Jesus, of the truth of the gospel. One of the reasons why I had Romans chapter 5, 18 through 21, read as our scripture reading this morning, is because I think, in a very real way, that section of scripture, chapter 5, verses 18 through 20, that's what Paul is reaching back to when he gets to the beginning of chapter 8. Is he's looking back at the end of chapter 5, and he's saying this, this idea, these are the verses again. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, get this, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And then in chapter 8, Paul says, there is therefore, because this is true, because this gospel that Jesus has brought, because this work in which only he can do, which is made available to anyone, because of that, those who've responded, there's no condemnation. It's good, good news. But this, this section of chapters 6, six through 8, um, we're going to get back to it uh, in, in, a second, in, in a second, but it, it rounds out the first half of, of Romans. Now, what about the second half? Uh, we're we're going to dig into the details of that, that section in just a second. But let me round out where Paul goes. Where does he go after Romans 8? And this is it, just in a snapshot. He spends three chapters, in a sense, addressing his own people. Chapters 9, 10, and 11, Paul addresses the nation of Israel. And basically, in chapter 9, he looks at Israel, and he talks about Israel's past. And what he says to them is, just look. Look at the way that God's been at work in your past. It's always been faith. It's always been grace. God's always been at work this way. Then he gets to chapter 10, and he talks to Israel about their right now, about their present. And he says to them, this gospel is available to you too. So in chapter 10, verse 9, you have a, maybe another famous verse from the book of Romans. But in Romans ch chapter 10, verse 9, he says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So Israel, look in the rearview mirror, chapter 9. God's always been at work in you this way. Chapter 10, look out the windshield. Look, 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 look at what's going on right now. It's available to you too. If you confess Jesus is Lord, you will be saved. And then in chapter 11, he asks them to look future. And the chapter 11's got some complicated ideas, and Paul does not give us all of the answers. But what he leaves us with is this. God is going to somehow keep every single promise that he made to the nation of Israel. He doesn't define exactly how he's going to do that, but that, that's what he says to the people of Israel. God's going to keep his promises to you. He's trustworthy. You, 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 can, you can trust him. And then in verses 12 through 16, uh, he gives a call to unity. 
He gives a call to growing through love. He gets extremely practical. He talks to them about serving and what does it look like to use your gifts in the body of Christ. He talks to them about humility. He talks to them about forgiveness. How is it that you forgive one another? You got to learn to do that. He talks to them about responding to differences in the non-essentials. Which, by the way, in regard to the non-essentials, those do not determine who's in and who's out. And it's so tempting. It was tempting for them in the first century. It's tempting for us now to have these non-essential, these these, these, uh, preference category actually play too big a part in the way that we see the people of God. And Paul talks to them about these non-essentials. And he's like, but you're free to have an opinion here. But make sure you don't let them grow to something they should not be. And so that's how he rounds out the letter of Romans. Now, let's finish by going back here to Romans chapter 8, verse 1, and ask what's happening in that section of 6 through 8. So I just said that Romans 6 through 8 gets into some of the real-life implications. So chapter 6, how does chapter 6 start? Chapter 6 starts with the verses that we read almost every single time we have a baptism here. And and these are verses that are a declaration about what has happened to a person who has actually realized that they're a sinner, realized that Christ can make them right, have put their faith in Christ, and actually been made right. In chapter 6, he says, uh, here's, here's what's going on in you. Here's what's true of you. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? So you, you've been made new in Jesus. Should you just keep on sinning? Because, hey, Jesus, his grace is so good. Paul says, no way, by no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ, Jesus, were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So Paul says, if this is you, if you've realized that you can't, that you're not right and you can't make yourself right, if you've realized that only Jesus can make you right, if you've actually had the transfer of trust and you've put your faith in Christ and he has made you right, then here's your response to that. You don't keep sinning because you just say grace is so good. No, you actually recognize that you've died with Christ and you have been raised to walk in newness of life. Later in the chapter, he, he, as he's talking about this joy of walking in newness of life with our new family, he says you're no longer a slave to sin. Now you're a joyful slave to righteousness. Chapter uh, 6, verse 17, that we are obedient from the heart. That we, we, we want to obey God's word. That we desire to obey God's word. That this is, what's, this is what new life in us is producing. Chapter 6, verses 22 and 23 tells us that we've been set free from sin and that we've been given the gift of eternal life. Like This is the posture. This is the life of one who's been made new in Jesus. And you say, man, that's such good news. What a, what a great life. Like I'm, I'm a slave to righteousness and I love it. I'm a joyful slave to righteousness. It's from my heart. I want to obey God. I wake up with a smile on my face and just obey him all day long. Yeah, not so much, right? Not so much. Uh, Chapter 7 is Paul's assistance with this complication. And in chapter 7, Paul lays right before us 
all the tensions, all the complexities of the follower of Jesus, all the failures, all the ups and downs. While it's true that if you've put your faith in Jesus, you have been baptized into Christ, you have died with him, you've been raised to walk in newness of life. While that's true, we still have the remnants of the old man. We still have remnants of sin that we are trying to navigate. And it's going to be true of us every day of our life on this earth. And chapter 7 does not leave us without uh, some comfort. Maybe as you read chapter 7, you can relate with the double-mindedness of Paul. If you read through this chapter, one of, the, one of the things he gets into is this language that it sounds a little complicated, but he says, you know, the things that I want to do are the very things that I don't do. And the things that I say I don't want to do are the very things that I end up doing. Oh, wretched man that I am. He says, I am, I am a mangled up mess. I am a double-minded man. I have all kinds of things tugging at my soul. I wish it was as simple as I'm a slave to righteousness and I wake up and I joyfully obey from the heart. I wish it was that simple. There's a day coming where that will be true for the people of God. That day is not yet. And Paul in chapter 7 owns the fact that even for the Christian, our loves are complicated. Our motives are complicated. But one of the things that happens, you know, Paul's like asking this question, who am I really? Who am I really? Am I a follower of Jesus or am I a fraud? Am I a hypocrite? Am I lying to myself? Who, who am I? Right in the middle of all of this, we see something so, so powerful. Right as Paul is talking about this, he, he, here's the gist of, of what he's saying. He's actually saying with all of the complexities, with all of what feels like this double-mindedness, this hypocrisy, what he realizes is, is that the real me, the real me, is the one who wants to follow Jesus. So notice his language. He says, the things that I want to do, that's the real me, are the things that I end up not doing. The things that I don't want to do, the real me, are the things that I end up doing. He's actually finding the root of his identity in the fact that he has been made new in Jesus. That the real him really does want the right thing. And yet he's fighting some internal battles that are dragging him back to the former way of life. And listen, Christian, I, I mean this to be an encouragement to you. It's an encouragement to me. It should be an encouragement to all of us. That if you are one who has recognized that you are a sinner... And that you can't fix that. You're not right and you can't make yourself right. If you have realized that, that Jesus can make you right and only Jesus can make you right. And you've placed your faith in Christ to do that. Then with all of the ups and downs, with all of the back and forth, the real you is the one who follows Jesus. The real you is the one who says, what I want to do is what Jesus wants me to do. And what I don't want to do are the things that Jesus tells me not to do. But I'm a mess. I'm a mess. The real me is chasing after Jesus. But I'm a mess. I've got the remnants of sin that I'm trying to navigate. I've got these challenges that I'm trying to sort out. Then we get to Romans chapter 8 verse 1. He says, there's no condemnation. 
All of that duplicity, all of that double-mindedness, all of that internal strife. And then Romans chapter 8, verse 1, there's no condemnation. Here's what I have to say about all that duplicity. Romans chapter 8. Because Christ alone leads to justification, because Christ alone leads to rightness, here's what I have to say. Romans chapter 8. You see, in a sense, Romans chapter 8, the therefore that we find in verse 1, really is responding to the first seven chapters. The, the arc of the argument that Paul is making is answered in so many ways. It's brought together. It's, it's laid before us in these 39 verses of, of chapter 8. He deals with all the failures of chapter 1 and chapter 2, sin and self-righteousness. How does that play out in the Christian life? He deals with all the frustrations of chapter 7 that you and I feel every day. And his answer is Jesus in the Spirit. Verse 1 of chapter 8 reintroduces Christ. Verse 2 of chapter 8 reintroduces the Spirit. And just interestingly, uh, over the course of the book of Romans, the Holy Spirit is referenced about 30 times in 16, in 16 chapters. 20 of those times are in Romans 8. So you want to know the answer to walking with Jesus? You want to know the answer to the one who has placed their faith in Christ and been made new? Part of, a significant part of that answer is the Spirit of God in you. That you're not doing this alone. And so we're going to bump into the Spirit often throughout this series. Romans 8 is a master class in how Jesus and the Holy Spirit will remake us and the whole world through new life and new love found in the good news of the gospel. Or to quote Derek Thomas again, how beautifully and powerfully the gospel brings us all the way home. That's our hope for the next few weeks. Now we're going to move to, to communion. And uh, maybe some of you already recognize this, but we're going to be doing communion a little differently uh, over the next few weeks. And we're going to see how it goes. And look, man, the, the pressure's off. So if this is a train wreck, we're going to fix it and we'll do it differently uh, in, in the weeks ahead. Um, but, but part of what we're, what we're aiming to do is this. Um, we we uh, went to weekly communion uh, a few years ago, and we're so thankful that, that we did. Um, but uh, one of the challenges has been, how, how, do, we, how do we administer the ordinances? How, how, do we, how do we do communion together? And what we've done basically, almost every week since then, is we've had you stand up row by row and come and, and receive, uh, receive the, the elements. And while there's some benefits to that, mainly crowd control and uh, traffic flow and things like that, there's a downside to that. And the downside to that is that some of us maybe need or would prefer a couple extra minutes to prepare our heart. Uh, maybe some of us like to get right to the table in response to the good news and get the bread and get the cup. Uh, some of us may not want to come forward and when your whole row stands up, uh, that, can, that can create maybe a little bit of an awkward, uh, awkward dynamic. So what we have done is we have made your rows wider, and we have made the aisles a little bit wider, and we now have four communion stations, two up front and two in the back, and then there's a fifth one in the balcony. And we're going to have two closing songs. And as, uh, over the course of these two closing songs, you can get up at any point in time and, and, and go, go to one of the stations, whichever one's closest to you or whichever one you want to go to. Uh, you can go to one of those stations and, and, and get the bread uh, and, and get the cup. 
And uh, our prayer is that this serves you. So you have got two songs. So you say, how long do I have? You've got two songs, okay? So when the first song ends, guess what that means? You're about halfway, okay? Um, so that's how long you have. And, uh, and, and you, can, you can take your time uh, or you can, you can race up here uh, because sometimes that's where my heart's at. Sometimes my heart is like, I, I need the bread in the cup like right now. And then I also sit in the front row, so I've always had to do that. Um, but now there's freedom and you can race up here and get it or you can take a minute uh, talk with God, um, and then go when you're ready. If, if you're, so if you're a Christian, you know, get up here and, get, and receive the elements. If you're not a Christian, man, our invitation is for you to receive Christ. If you've never actually had the transfer of trust, a recognition that, that only Christ can make you right, and only faith in Christ will make you right, uh, then today, man, today's the day. And in, in that bulletin that you got when you came in, uh, there's some, some prayers, some language that maybe, maybe will help you uh, talk, talk with God about that. Uh, so, First um, Corinthians 11, on the night when he was betrayed, took the bread and was given thanks. He broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant, my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the broken body of Jesus. We thank you for the spilled blood of Jesus. And we thank you for these tangible representations, an actual piece of bread and a cup full of juice that represents this incredible work of Jesus on our behalf. How is it possible that Jesus can make us right? Because he went as our substitute. Because he became the propitiation for our sin, the payment for our sin. He, he went in our place. He gave his body, he spilled his blood so that we could be brought to you, so that we could be made right. God, if Jesus did not do that, then everything we've talked about today is, is empty. But we thank you that he has. And as we taste this bread and this juice on our tongues, would you remind us again, would you, would you allow it to sink deeper into our souls, this good news about who Jesus is? In Jesus' name I pray, amen.